This is Erica in Edmonton. Shannon in Durham. And Chip in Durham. And this is episode 17 of the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, A Voice in the Wilderness, parts 1 and 2. Double your fun! Yes, that's right. This is a twofer. It's an extra big, well, I don't know if it's actually going to be an extra big episode of the podcast, but it's it's extra big as far as the amount of homework we had to do, right? Ah, man, I was sweating bullets trying to get through that. Talk about cramming for the final. Oh, <laughs> um, hey. you guys may not remember me. My name's Chip. Hi. <laughs> yeah. Welcome, Welcome back. back. It's good to back be back. Back to the world of... Back to the world of health, I hope. <laughs> yes, back to the world of health. Although, I, I, as I was convalescing and editing the episode, I must confess that I, I thought I was getting better, and then I had what I can only describe as a conniption fit. There was this moment in, um, in the last episode of the podcast when Stephen said something on the order of... I actually quite, I mean, I mentioned this to Erica and she was, she was quite kind of taken aback, I think, but I, I kind of like the episodes more when there's no Londo or, um, um, what's the other, Jakar, because <laughs> I just find them to be very stagey aliens and sort of like, you know, are slightly pantomime acting and they're sort of in there for comic relief. And when they're not in the episode, I sort of get the impression that, you know, okay, we're in for a serious episode apart from, I, I And I lost my stuff. <laughs> Erica, how can you be married to this cretin? I, I have nothing to say for myself. He also makes me listen to Feliz Navidad over and over again. So really, I should just, I should just, you know, file for some sort of domestic <laughs> abuse claim. <sighs> oh, Erica. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, but I want to wish you a Merry Christmas. <laughs> oh, grief. Don't make me reach through that microphone. Uh, so, Babylon 5, guys. Yes. Yes, indeed. Babylon 5. Uh, if, if this, dear listener, happens to be your, your first jumping on place for us, I, I want to give you a little background about Babylon 5. It is an Earth-run space station orbiting uninhabited planet Epsilon 3 in neutral territory. Commander Jeffrey Sinclair is in charge. Lieutenant Commander Susan Ivanova, his no-nonsense second-in-command. Security Chief Michael Garibaldi excels at gathering information and has a history on Mars, where civil unrest has been growing for some time. Talia Winters is the station's registered telepath, working for an organization called PsyCor. And B5 also hosts ambassadors from several races, including Mimbari Ambassador Delenn and Centauri Ambassador Londo Malari. And that's basically what you need to know to get you up to speed for this two-parter, a Voice in the Wilderness, in which the station crew discover the planet beneath them is not as uninhabited as they thought. Seismic upheavals prompt a survey crew to investigate, only to be nearly shot out of the sky. Sinclair and Ivanova can't resist heading down to check it out, where they discover a near-dead alien in the midst of a great machine. Sinclair recognizes him from a vision he had while still on the station. They bring him back to B-5, where an Earth Force heavy cruiser has arrived to take charge of the situation. In other words, to make sure the filthy aliens don't get their hands on anything good down there. 
Sinclair is forced to play fast and loose with the truth to keep shoot-first-and-ask-questions-later Captain Pierce from sending ships down because Varn, the alien from Epsilon 3, tells them the planetary defense system is on automatic without him and will self-destruct if anybody tries to land and is going to do so anyway if nobody takes over for him. The three candidates to take over are Commander Sinclair, Londo, and Delenn's visiting friend, Drawl. The three of them slip away and head for the planet with Varn, where Drawl finds a fitting end to his blooming quest to find a way to help people in the stars. He inserts himself into the machine, effectively leaving everything else in his life behind forever. Oh, and some outcasts of Varn's race make a claim on the planet too, but Drawl blasts them out of the sky in a very dramatic demonstration of the power the planet holds. When he says not to visit Epsilon 3 until the time is right, he really means it. And that is a voice in the wilderness in a nutshell. So, this is our first two-parter in Babylon 5. Um, I'm wondering what you guys think. Actually, let's get our biases out of the way, first of all. Uh, how Bias? do you guys feel about... <laughs> how do you guys feel about two-parters in general? I happen to be a sucker for a two-parter. I like it when a story kind of spreads out a bit. Do you guys have any any feelings about that in general? Well, I, I, I do like a good mix. Um, uh, Babylon 5 in this first season is trying to be uh, all episodic and new viewer friendly and all of that, which I don't think it's much of a spoiler to say that is going to change as the show continues. We have been talking about a five-year arc for the show. Um, but this is, this is the first time that a show, that a story gets to breathe across more than a 45 minute episode. And, I think in general, I like having my science fiction shows mix it up. And in specific, I really appreciate the change of pace for this episode. Um, it almost feels like old, it almost feels like old, old Doctor Who a little bit. Um, that all of a sudden we're moving from really concentrated, um, compressed storytelling to a bit more of an opportunity for a sense of awe and wonder. And that's one thing that this episode gets pretty well is um, the exploration of the mystery, uh, the exploration of the planet, and time to ooh and ah over the Forbidden Planet-esque um, uh, setting uh, for the Great Machine. Um, so I don't think that this w would be a good idea for the bulk of, uh, of the first season of the show, but as for just dropped in in the last third of the season, um, I, I really like it. You know, it's interesting you use the word breathe, that it has time to breathe. That's ac exactly what Steven said. He said he, after the first episode, he said he really liked the pace, be the pace because it was a two-parter that had time to breathe. Exactly what you said. Shannon, how about you? What did you think? I actually, for me, it felt more like we had a good episode and a half worth of material I can't pinpoint to any one thing that honestly felt like padding, but I found myself tuning out several times, which I normally don't do in a Babylon 5 episode. Um, again, I can't say that, you know, this part was unnecessary or this part was unnecessary, but it still felt a little bit to me like they had just a little bit too much room. Yeah, I think for me, it, it I, I just liked it. Um, but I completely agree with with Chip with what you said that that this episode or this two part 
two-parter wouldn't have worked earlier in the season, in part because staying episodic and making it comfortable for new viewers was an important thing, but also because I think when you have something that breathes this much, uh, it's important to kind of know the characters already, to let them do their thing in front of you a little bit more and not rely on the plot quite so much. And I think that Earlier on, we didn't know these characters that well because there are so many characters in Babylon 5. And now that we have had enough time with each of them that we have a, a little bit better of an idea of, of who they are, uh, that it works a lot better at this point than um, than it would have earlier on. Absolutely. For example, uh, we have uh, Delin. Um, we, got, we got a little bit of this very early on uh, in the war prayer with Shaw Mayan, but we see that Delenn is a character of great compassion, great feeling, has strong bonds with uh, other people uh, from her world. She's not sort of on the outs the way Londo is. And all of this, all, all of this uh, touching uh, mentor-mentee relationship stuff withdrawal, I think earlier in the season would probably have felt a little schmaltzy, felt, felt unwelcome. Uh, Whereas now that I feel like I know Delenn better, um, I, I really do like it. And it, and it. and it gives us all kinds of nice shadings uh, to her uh, character background. Or even if it had come earlier, it might have given us sort of the wrong idea about her. Because as we have now seen, the Mimbari culture is, is very sort of, I don't want to say standoffish, but they're definitely a little bit more stoic overall. So when you do see her just have this warmth and joy at seeing him uh, at the beginning, I, I think it makes a bigger impact now than it would have earlier. Because we know that for her, that can that, that while she has that within her, that's not a common uh, thing that you see from Mimbari all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's well it, it, it's well written and well uh, performed that relationship when um, Louis Turin as Draw shows up for the first time. Um, you can see in their eyes that if they weren't Minbari, they'd just be hugging each other to death. <laughs> uh, and instead, you know, it's a very very warm mutual uh, breastbone uh, touch thing, um, <laughs> which. You know, um, that's a lot for a Mimbar. It really, is. It seems it is. Yeah. Well, we're, while we're talking about Drawl, let's let's just jump right in and talk about the uh, the idea that Drawl um, is is one of the three choices to to jump into the machine. So we've we've got Varn appearing to Drawl, to Commander Sinclair, and to Londo, uh, which seems like kind of a it, an odd threesome. Now, personally, I thought from the very beginning that there there wasn't a whole lot of question about who's going to end up in that machine because we have two characters who are clearly regulars on the show and one who just showed up and is, is looking to go to sea, which apparently for the Mimbari means travel the universe and never come home again for some reason. So it, there was not a whole lot of tension there for me, but I do think that it was interesting that those were the, the three folks that were that were on the block basically for that for that job. Shannon, what did you think about those three of the choices? Um, well, like you, I think it was telegraphed pretty strongly. Um, I interpreted the going to sea as um, apparently some kind of Mimbari metaphor for dying. Like uh, he has learned that you know he is you know um, ill, terminally ill in some way, and therefore he has left Mimbar to go travel around while he can. Um, I never I took. That- I never took that, but. Well, I kind of did from the from Delenn's reaction that if if he was just going off to travel, I don't think she would have looked as 
briefly heart sick as she did. I really saw it as more of a one of those Mimbari sort of very overdramatic kind of life decisions where once you make the decision to to leave and and go on this quest, you simply never can come back. I, I didn't get the impression that, that he was actually going to die, that he was just making this bold, grand gesture that he was going to leave and never come back. Yeah, possibly. Like I said, there were several things mm-hmm. that made me think that uh, that the my impression was that he was actually uh, approaching the end of his life and he knew it and was going to mm-hmm. do something with it, which, of course, again, for me, pointed very clearly that uh, Drawl would, again, like you said, be the one uh, to take the place of Varn in the machine. He's you know not a regular. This gives him a, a purpose, the kind of purpose he's been looking for, for a lot of his life since he's been seeing the changes on Minbar that he refers to. Mm-hmm. Chip, what about you? I, I'm not sure. Um, it does seem kind of arbitrary, the three, uh, the three characters that, uh, that Varn would appear to. Why wouldn't he appear before Delenn? Why wouldn't, mm-hmm. you know, we, we sort of get the sense that, in, in, to borrow the language of uh, a previous episode, that these characters are all, uh, that two of these three characters are so-called true seekers. Londo is kind of interesting. Drawl attributes Varn appearing before them because all three characters recognize the role of self-sacrifice, that being the third principle of sentient life, one of the (laughs) few real clunkers of of, of a line in this this episode. But yeah, it it feels kind of arbitrary um, as portrayed by Louis Turin and as written. It's not just that he's a guest star, but he he is the most logical character to to get put into that great machine. And I like the steel that he has at the end when um, he entrusts the great machine to the B5 Advisory Council and says, "But by the way, if you don't um, if if you don't leave us alone, I kill you." Uh, which he which 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 he promptly does when Varn's um, outcast people make an effort at it. He's very clearly written to be the obvious character, and it's not just because he's the new guy. Mm-hmm. When it comes to Londo, I, I too was kind of tilting my head a little bit and being like, what? But I think Peter Jurassic's performance sold it for me in that scene in the garden where they're they're talking about the fact that they had seen them and and the fact that just the way Londo carries himself, he... He spends some some time in this story being a little bit buffoonish, like when he talks to Garibaldi um, and is talking, you know, water. I never touched the stuff myself. He's he's a little bit silly. That's not and buffoonish. Then, that's beautiful. But, we'll have to talk. But see, about it is. That. It exactly. You didn't let me finish. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, it, so it seems like he's going back to being this goofy character, and then pretty quickly you realize he's doing it on purpose to cheer up a friend who he clearly cares about very deeply. And I think that that is very very beautiful. And then you get him get him sort of not exactly deflating but that's that's kind of what I what I got when he walks in and he's he says yes I've seen him too and they talk about self-sacrifice and then you just see him kind of fall in on himself a little bit as he is thinking about self-sacrifice and and it's clear that to me at least I I bought that he would he would do that he would sacrifice himself and not come back and and he would be okay with it because perhaps it would give his life meaning or perhaps because it would help him escape the the death fate that 
he already has told us about that he has foreseen um, with him and Jakar apparently strangling each other. So or, whatever his reasoning, I bought it. Or that um, he feels like he's a bit of a loser right now. I mean, that, that's one of the things that uh, draw that that had draw leaving his people was he was he reveals that Minbari are having some issues that that appear to be a milder version of what's going on on Earth and Mars right now. And Drawl just doesn't feel like he fits in there anymore. And if anything's been clear in the season just thus far, Lando doesn't feel like he fits in much either. Well, while we're talking about characters, let's let's kind of jump around a little bit and talk about Garibaldi, because we definitely get some Garibaldi character development in, in this story. Uh, all the action that's going on on Mars, and, and that's where Garibaldi most recently came from. And apparently the love of his life is still there, and he let her go, and that was very sad. Uh, and he, he really spends this whole episode feeling kind of helpless and it's it, it's a little sad to watch because he just he really wants to be able to do something and he can't and he's he seems to me like the kind of person who is not used to to not being in control um you know having overcome his his alcohol issues being in control can be a, a very important thing and and at this point he really can't do anything so he's he's reaching out all over the place to, to try to find her at least um and then of course she's married to somebody else at the end very sad what did you guys think about the uh, the Garibaldi character development here and, and the portrayal thereof by, by Jerry Doyle. Chip? What kind of a name is Franz? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good, it, it, it's a good turn. It's a good turn for Garibaldi. Um, I like the, I like the little monologue that he has with Sinclair about um, explaining why he never uh, reached back out uh, to Lise, that he was afraid she'd turn him down or he was afraid that she wouldn't turn him down, and neither one of those is neither one of the those is, in, uh, is a comfortable prospect to think about. So he just avoided the issue. It may contribute to Shannon's sense of padding um, in the fact that it's 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 a B plot that doesn't directly relate to what's going on. the The whole Mars thing is just it's just there to heighten the tension and to um, make the Senate and uh, Captain Pierce who is criminally not played by Alan Alda, um, to be more <laughs> to, 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 to be more on edge and more prone to um, more prone to counterproductive behavior. I, I like it. I like it. I like the added dimension that that gives to um, Garibaldi. And I think Jerry Doyle plays it well, except for maybe the uh, scene at the restaurant. But um Although that has more to do with the uh, with our latest heavy extra, yeah. Uh, but I, <laughs> I I like it. Um, I don't know that if we took it away, I don't think that we'd have enough for. We certainly wouldn't have enough for a two parter. Um, I think we'd be left with more material than a single episode would be able to sustain. You know, yeah. I, I agree about the scene in in um, in his quarters with Sinclair. I think that was maybe the strongest performance that I have seen from from Jerry Doyle so far. I, I bought it very much, um, but I think that his performance maybe does or not his performance, but that storyline maybe does add to the padding a little bit because I was a little confused at the end why he followed them down to the planet. And it was just because he wanted to do something, but he didn't really serve any role when he got there. So maybe that is some padding. Shannon, what do you think? Well, and that was the point I was going to make that um, part of the reason 
for him to be the one to go down to the planet's surface uh, to follow the others is because he had to do something. He was he was tired of sitting on the sidelines and not being able to accomplish anything, trying to get through to somebody on Mars to give him information about Lee's. Um, so I think, you know, that certainly contributed to why he was the one to go and follow them without telling anybody else what he was going to do. Yeah, did he even really serve any purpose there, or am I am I forgetting something? Well, I think they would have needed him to fly them back. I don't think Delenn, um or I don't know that she wanted Londo to fly them back up after the <laughs> after point. flying down. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that that's a point. I'm not quite certain, you know, why he was needed to be down there other than an extra witness, uh, an official witness, uh, someone from Earth Force to be able to say, you know, oh. this, this is what happened. But it is so sort true. of all retrospective, you know. It's good that he was there, but he didn't have a good reason for being there. Mm-hmm. Well, w- when it comes to the the whole Mars situation, that's sort of our uh, political backdrop uh, that we've got in this one. But we also sort of have the politics of the military takeover when the uh, um, the Hyperion jumps out, which is our, our our cliffhanger. Actually, at that point, when the people when the, really uh, don't want Sinclair running things, do they? I know the uh, <laughs> the. I mean, even before we got the the ship coming out, when we had the cliffhanger, Steve Stephen just went, "What the hell?" Ah, and then he applauded, so he quite enjoyed the cliffhanger thing. Um, but really? I think he was, ex- yeah, he did. <laughs> Um, but I think he was expecting. I think he was expecting something a little bit bigger on the other side because it was just an Earth heavy cruiser, and he was like, "Oh, that's it." I thought it was going to be one of those crazy ships that 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 killed, you know, that that blew up that other one that we didn't know what it was. So, so I think he might have been a little bit disappointed in um, the resolution to that. But but we do have this, this somebody else coming in and trying to take over from Commander Sinclair, and he can't get anybody to to be on his side and has to has to lie about stuff to to keep things together. Yeah, we've got sneaky Sinclair back. Mm-hmm. So always, always finding a way around things. Yeah, I think what we see here is uh, the divide between like the po- politicians and the military, um, because in the end, Santiago reaffirms that Sinclair's in charge, and Babylon Five is a diplomatic station, and you know it's it's implied, if not outright stated, that. Uh, Santiago's vision for what Babylon 5 is is pretty much in accord with Sinclair's. Uh, We're not going to throw the mission over just for a quick opportunity for us to get ahead. Whereas the military, um, as personified by Captain Pierce, not only do they have a misplaced sense of, uh, of just how awesome they are, um, because if our spaceship, if we have a spaceship here, the other races won't mess with us. Uh, remember that Minbari War where you got your uh, tails kicked before? <laughs> just, uh, I'm just saying. Um, there's that sort of tension between the military and um, the sort of political idealism that I suppose uh, Santiago ha- has at this point. But once again, as you said, there is not a whole – Sinclair doesn't get any respect. He doesn't get any respect from Erica, and he doesn't get ex- respect from the <laughs> rest of the military. He's just a commander. He's got no business being here. He is probably thought of by many more people than just Ben Zane or the um, the the knights who, uh, who tried to uh, mentally interrogate him. People believe that he was 
inappropriately influenced by the Minbari, um, and he's just a lowly commander. Uh, they try to walk right over him. What's his name? Oren Zinto tried to walk over him. Ben Zane mm-hmm. tried to ramp, you know, uh, Pierce. Uh, Pierce, when in that one scene in Sinclair's office, you know, it's just outright contempt. Cushy gig you've got here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. No, it, it's it. I I really am fascinated by that, and it sort of mirrors um, the 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 sort of fanish reaction to um, Michael O'Hare when the first season was airing. You know, um, um, people people warmed up to him over time, but he was never a universally beloved uh, figure, such as you know, say Patrick Stewart. Yeah. Well, you know, this is I suppose as good a time as any to do our little Sinclair check in. Um, I. I noted down just a few things about his performance throughout throughout this, and actually there were more more positives than there were negatives. This wasn't, I don't think, a super strong episode, but it, it wasn't as disappointing as a couple of the more recent ones have been. Uh, at the very beginning, um, when Londo was asking, "Hey, if you find anything down on the planet, you're gonna you're gonna tell me, won't you?" <laughs> so he just says. No, the the look on his face that was that was an awesome line delivery right there. He was that was excellent, and I, I I mean I liked it from a character standpoint where he's playing fast and loose with the truth and pretending that there's some sort of jamming device that there really isn't. I, I think he kind of sold that one, and and um, when he's issuing the uh, uh, when the aliens come in, Varn's uh, people come in and uh, issue their ultimatum. And then Captain Pierce jumps in and issues a shorter ultimatum. Sinclair's reaction to that with no words was one of the the best, I think, moments of the entire story. He rolls his eyes and shrugs at just the same time in just the right... Like, it was was perfect. He was just so over the stupid, bombastic captain. And and I was right there with him, so that was good. And then Ivanova's line right after that's the cherry on top. Worst case of testosterone poisoning. Yes, mm-hmm. but we did we did get a little bit of um, intense Sinclair, which you know isn't my particular favorite. And in his reaction to seeing the the projection of Varn, I, I did not believe he was seeing something in front of him. It was that was very unconvincing and overplayed. But that was really the only weak moment. The rest of it was fine for me. What did you guys think of of Michael O'Hare this time? Um, overall, I thought. The nonverbal, especially the nonverbal acting, the the expressions, the reactions, um, were some of the best I've seen him do in in this season so far. Um, I pinpointed, and of course now I can't remember the exact scene, but there was one point where I thought, okay, maybe now he's got the intense without the wide eye, and maybe that's good enough for Erica. There was one point when I could see him skirting close, but then I thought <laughs> he he reined it in, um, and that his intensity was. Uh, was believable rather than over the top. Um, but by and large, uh, I really appreciated a lot of what he did. And again, not so much delivering lines, but all of the other little things around speaking those lines. Yeah, I I also liked the interplay between um, him and Ivanova. They're both excited about this first contact um, situation. And as as was explained all the way back in the Soul Hunter episode, you know, when when you've got a first contact situation, you've you've got to have your lead people on the line in that moment um, because you can't let a a junior officer potentially screw it up. And when they decide that it is 
uh, it is pretty much a first contact situation. Sinclair and Ivanova are almost just a little bit gleeful like kids because Mm -hmm. they get to play now. They have a reason to throw themselves into the middle of danger, even though the um, the uh, survey crew uh, nearly got themselves blown out of the sky. So that perhaps uh, stretches credibility a little bit. But, you know, they're excited and um, they go down. They do some some nice uh, Indiana Jones stuff with the um, um, laser gate. Shooty corridor. The shooty corridor. Yes. And that moment when they hit the Forbidden Planet scene and they're looking up at the towering energy corridor thing and Ivanova says I need to go to the bathroom and Sinclair <laughs> says know what you mean you know it's it's lovely Michael O'Hare and Claudia Christian don't always have believable chemistry with each other but they had they had a pretty good run this time yeah I agree I, I liked it and, and your description again is exactly the thing that I thought of when they were talking about going down to the planet because it was a first contact situation they were like kids being told they get a trip to the candy store like I'm gonna get me some lollipops they just looked very very excited and and I did I did buy that I thought that that worked and they managed to sort of carry that feeling along with them even when they were when they were underground and you know going through like you said the shooty corridor the obstacle course kind of a thing uh, they 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 seemed excited to be doing something and i guess i can understand that because being stuck on a station all the time might get a little bit confining after a while mm-hmm. i think this episode especially really showed them as a cohesive team more so than in previous episodes necessarily where there's been you know yes there's still the hierarchy of sinclair as commander ivanova as his second but they they really were in sync uh, a lot more this episode that, than this two-parter than they have been sometimes. Um, I think, in a way, I think Susan's almost been elevated a bit. Um, I think it's sort of been building slowly the last few episodes as she gets more good lines and we've seen more of her character. Um, but, you know, she's, she finally gets to take part in the open jacket acting. You know, she's got her jacket off as the <laughs> three of them are brainstorming. Um, the fact that Sinclair makes a point of telling Garibaldi to make sure she gets off the station if they have to evacuate. Um, for me, that was kind of touching that, you know, that lends to the idea of self-sacrifice and why he's one of the candidates for, for the machine. Uh, but the fact that he sees Ivanova as having her whole career ahead of her compared to himself and Garibaldi. To, to emphasize that they need to get her off the station, even though she won't want to go. Um, so showing a level of respect and caring for her as well, I think helped really bring them in, into a unit that they haven't been before. Yeah. On Very top true. of that, I'd like to point out, I really like that moment in when the three of them are in Sinclair's office doing the open collar acting and, Sinclair makes a point of asking Susan for her opinion of what they should do when and then um, she gives a really, really good answer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's that's part of the egalitarianism that B5 really strives for with its characters. Uh, and I like that. I like the the level of respect that that indicates that Sinclair has for Ivanova. And uh, when we get to that scene in Garibaldi's quarters and. Sinclair, Sinclair's gone through the litany of how he wants the uh, the evacuation to go. You know, I'm you know the the women and children line seems a little anachronistic, um, mm-hmm. but but when he talks about making sure that that Ivanova's on the last shuttle, 
It's because he recognizes that she's not going to want to go. Uh, and it's not about her status as a woman. It's her status as a person with a promising career ahead of her. Whereas uh, Sinclair and Garibaldi may have fewer good years ahead of them than she does. Uh, so it's sort of a waste of material thing. You know that you know that if it comes to that, Garibaldi's just going to have to trank her. And, well, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. And um, they both recognize it. And he's telling Sinclair is telling Garibaldi to trank her. And he's also telling Garibaldi that he expects Garibaldi to die with him. And, you know, that's just a really powerful scene right there. Mm-hmm. I, absolutely. If, if it doesn't come across, I, I really enjoyed this episode. And I wasn't expect <laughs> I wasn't expecting to enjoy it as much as I did watching it this time. Um, because like Shannon sort of experienced this time when she was watching it, I did sort of expect it to be a little padded and a little inconsequential, but no, I love the feel of it and I love the pacing and I love what it tells me about the characters. Yeah, I, I also really like this one. And I think part of the reason that I like it so much is because it just feels mysterious i like that you know they're this this planet that they've been around for this whole time suddenly suddenly it means something and and finding something right underneath their their feet literally that that is almost magical it's so technologically advanced is just really cool and and that was another something that steven kind of said about it as well that it, it felt momentous in some way although by the time it got to the end i think it was wrapped up a little bit more than he expected it to. He thought it was going to be more of a game changer, I think was, were his words. But then it all just settled down at the end. And, and he wasn't upset with that. He said, you know, maybe it's just not the right time. This is still the first season. We're still getting into it. But but I think I think for me, it, it did feel a little bit like a game changer simply because it felt like it was on a bit of a grander scale than some of the stuff that we have seen already, perhaps. Um, another thing that I just wanted to quickly touch on was also because I think Stephen would be sad if I missed it is the fact that we have Talia Winters back and she Mm -hmm. has not been in any episodes for quite a while, which is one of those things that happens with a a big ensemble cast. But every episode for, you know, since, since several after she'd been gone, Stephen has wondered if she'd been fired, if she had just mysteriously (laughs) died off screen because she hadn't been around. So, so he, she showed up and he was like, holy S she's on the payroll again. I'm stunned. So he was very surprised to see her and she she doesn't do a whole lot here and actually watching this at first i was a little bit surprised that she just agrees to help garibaldi so readily because he's really being stalkery and that's kind of creepy um but then after thinking about it a little bit i realized that that she does agree to help him pretty quickly but i think that's just establishing her as as a good person and she as a telepath can probably feel his fear a little bit um so I, I can understand her capitulating so quickly and, and agreeing to try to help. And also, it's, it's a good thing to have the security chief owing you a favor. Did, did that strike either of you guys as, as off at all, or did it just kind of seem fine? I think uh, I agree with everything that you're saying. Plus, um, as a telepath, uh, this would be the first time that I, I would assume that she would pick up on the fact that this is the first time that Garibaldi doesn't want anything from her but her help. Mm, mm-hmm. So there's that. Shannon? For me, I think it was, he had to really push to get her to listen. But once she heard his story, um, you know, she could, you know, certainly 
it maybe not telepathically, but just general body language and, you know, reading a person's tone and such would understand how much it meant to him. And yes, because she is a, a decently good person, um, that she'd be willing to help. Um, something I liked about, uh, her, her storyline in here was, um, the first, uh, or not the first, but another little chink in the armor about her beliefs of Psycor, because to have this other person telling her that, you know, we, we're not going to confirm that we exist to Garibaldi. And she's like, he knows we, he knows we're here. They're, you're being paranoid. And, you know, the other, the, the fact that she would criticize the, the decision um, was just another tiny little step um, away from, away from her ironclad belief that Psycor is everything. Right. Although I also like the fact that, you know, to this to this point, Talia is pretty much the only positive representation that, of the Psychor that we've had. Uh, otherwise, we've had Bester and Kelsey. Um, well, and, and Harriman Gray. And OK. Uh, and Harriman yeah. Gray. OK. The, good point. Good point. Um, but here is a minor character who's in, who's involved in uh, some of the classified stuff of Psychor. And even she she volunteers you know she Talia didn't um, ask but the the other psychor uh staffer volunteers to see if she can find out any information about this that's person true. and that's, that's true. it's 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 completely voluntary and it's just a reminder that uh not every psychop is bester very true yeah, speaking of Talia, Stephen went on to say that he finds her uh, as a character to be a cross between Cuddy from House and Judith Light. So take that for what you will. <laughs> yeah, that was my reaction. <laughs> so, Steven, you younger I listeners you. might have to look up Judith Light. But yeah. <sighs> yeah, I don't I don't I don't know where he gets these things from, but uh but yeah, um, I think there weren't a whole lot of downsides for this episode, uh, these two episodes for me. I, I quite liked it. One thing that I didn't like so much was the fact that they kind of were really hitting the I'm Russian, this is what we do thing pretty hard. We had some kind of in your face lines about that from Ivanova. And I don't mind it when they're spread out a little farther. But this was just, it was a little on the nose. The, the I don't fir- know if you guys. The, the first one I don't was know. great. I- Ivanova's yeah. God kind of made up for it. Her 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 yeah, Ivanova's God speech, yeah, that that balanced it out quite a bit for me because that's just one of my favorite all time speeches from her. And then out of focus in the background, everybody's starting to watch her, and then she turns, and everybody's like, "Well, oh, oh, excuse me, <laughs> we weren't paying attention to you. No, we're doing our jobs." Janet Greek again, Janet Greek director, Janet mm-hmm. Greek, we like her. Yeah, overall it was really good. I mean, even there were bits where the the scene between um, Delenn and Drawl was a little bit stagey. It it really felt like I was watching a, a fairly decent stage play, kind of the way that it was acted out. But that that didn't bother me the way that staginess sometimes does on Babylon Five. In this case, I I still bought it that the characters were were feeling what they were feeling i think the the only real negative and this is not a directing thing this was a writing thing i think is at the end of another one of the intimate scenes uh between garibaldi and sinclair when garibaldi is having that really great performance talking about lease at the end of that scene it goes from from me really buying his frustration and his helplessness to it turning back into that sappy love letter style of writing just sort of the florid prose that that we get sometimes when jm is is trying to be romantic and I, it, it lost me at the end of that scene i don't know if it played okay for you 
The only uh, sour note I had, um, and it's a really niggling one, but we're seeing a little bit of the limitations of the special effects of the time. Uh, when uh, Londo's Centauri uh, ship is uh, heading its head, making its way down to the planet's surface, and it's gently swooping here and there to get past the shots and all this other stuff, we have that line of um, we have that line. Whoever's in that ship's uh, flying like a madman. It doesn't look like particularly madman flying. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> mm-hmm. Very true. <laughs> yes, I think. Although I, I do want to, I was just say that the, as far as the writing goes, I think it was balanced out with a bunch of other stuff in this one. But my favorite was the line that uh, Londo says near the beginning that if if all of Narns stood in one place and hated all at once, you know, they could reduce Centauri Prime to ash. That's that is the kind of kind of sort of poetic, beautiful line that I I like that I think that JMS can do really well, and that that sings for me. And what really helped that scene for me was Mira Furlan's acting in that and her reactions to him. The the fact that she is just genuinely sorrowful that that nothing she can seem to say or do is going to pull the Narn and then Centauri to a place where they can start talking and start working this out. I really noticed her her entire performance in that scene. Yeah, she's she goes from from just you know it's it's not exactly angry. She's like a school marm trying to school him on on the uh, school Londo on the, the reactions of Jakar. You know, anger. It's un, he's unreasonable and angry, and those are two different things. Anger fades over time, and then at the end, she then she's just believing that Londo eventually will have to listen because the alternative is too terrible. <sighs> that was a really great scene. Mm-hmm. I liked it. Do you guys have anything else that you want to cover before we jump into spoiler territory? No, I am ready for the jump gate. I'm almost ready. Uh, One thing that I noticed this time in particular, we've mentioned a number of times um, how JMS and the casting team have been able to um, use lots of different ethnic actors or um, women in places where it, it doesn't matter that it's a woman. It doesn't matter that uh, they're African-American or Asian or whatever. What I noticed particularly in this two-parter was the ability to not only cast blindly when it comes to ethnicity, but also be willing to round out the characters a bit more. We have the um, survey team leader, uh, the doctor, the Asian gentleman. I can't remember the exact name mm-hmm. now. Um, you know, the fact that he's he's in the, the position of authority, but also he's a fairly arrogant jerk at times. <laughs> you know, he, he is, he's only worried about, you know, what can he discover about the planet and willing to disobey He's been taking disobey Franklin orders. lessons. Yeah, there, there's a little <laughs> bit of that. Um, and I also liked not only was the captain of the Hyperion, Captain Pierce, African-American, but they were willing to make him a pretty unpleasant figure for most of the episode, where I think a lot of times when you, I can see another program choosing to hire somebody of a different race and very carefully making them the paragon of that role so that they mm-hmm. don't risk being accused of, um, of stereotyping in some way. And I feel, and that's one yeah, of the things nice. I feel. I feel Babylon Five is able to push beyond those issues and just hire very good actors for these roles and have them play it. Which is more, which is not necessarily all that noteworthy when you look at today's television. But this was twenty years ago, right? Yeah, I still, even today, you know, 
even today's television sometimes. Admittedly, I'm not as watching as much as I used to, but I, I still feel like mm-hmm. that that stood out. For, that did stand out for me. Yeah, it's nice to see see characters that are just people, you know, with with regular people flaws that look different all over the board. Excellent, excellent point. I actually had that in my notes too. I just overlooked it. So thank you for bringing that up. You're welcome. All right. Well, before we jump into spoiler space, we need to give you your homework assignment for next time. And that, uh, remember, we are sticking to the Lurker's Guide master episode list. We haven't quite gotten back on track with the the on-screen airing. So we are going to go with Babylon Squared. That is your homework for next time. So watch that, hopefully enjoy it, and then come back next time for us to chat about it. If this is your first time watching Babylon 5. Um, In a moment, you're going to want to jump off board because we're going to start talking about the series as a whole and there will be spoilers galore. Um, So when you have jumped off, please come and visit us online. Let us know what you think. We are at uh, b5audioguide.com where we have spoiler-free and spoilerific threads, both for you to tell us what you think of the show. And of course, you can find us on Twitter and on Tumblr at b5audioguide. So... Until next time, now we are going to jump into spoiler territory. All right, and we are back, and now it is wide open spoiler space. And there's just quite a bit here that that comes back later. Some definite hints all over the place, and I let's was just start expecting with ep- that Epsilon Three would be more monumental. <laughs> I know. I know. That's just adorable. I to be like, Ugh. I mean, he, you know, and I, I did just, I just sort of just said, well, you know, Drawl did say when the time is right. And I, but, you know, I wasn't going to commit to whether or not there was ever going to be a right time or if it just gets dropped. But boy, it certainly doesn't get dropped. This is kind of a big deal. And I think that that's why, again, I watched this after seeing the rest of the series. So for me, this did feel like an arc-heavy episode simply because I knew how much this played into the later arc as opposed to Steven seeing it for the first time who has no idea or probably has an idea, but there's no confirmation yet. What do you guys think about the uh, the Epsilon 3 and, and where we're going from here? Yeah, well, I was actually trying to remember um, when we finished up, I was actually trying to think that this should have turned out more monumental than it did. Um, we get, you know, like, like yes, Drawl helps uh, guide them towards uh, the idea of finding the first ones. And um, we have this one rather hokey bit where Sheridan uses Drawl's holographic imagery to make this announcement over the entire station, like there's not a PA system. <laughs> that those were the only things I could really remember. I mean, I may be forgetting something, but the the planet doesn't take as huge of a role as it could have uh, with the Shadow War and everything else going on. It has a very important role. And after it after it commits that role, there's really nothing else left for it to do. And that is to create the space-time warp that uh, moves yep. Babylon 4 through um, time and space. Okay. As a okay. space-time warp is supposed to do. Yeah, uh, Epsilon 3 is a problem for the series. Because it is only there for the B4 story uh, and a couple of other things that happen when cosmic awareness is called for, as when Ivanova discovers the uh, record of transmission between Morden and uh, Vice President Clark. But yeah, it it, it is one of these big, all-powerful MacGuffins that 
is too powerful be, to be used until the time is right, and then for the most part, it is never the right time. I mean, we have the line, why don't we use Drawl in the Great Machine uh, during the Series 3 um, three-parter when uh, B5 has to defend itself uh, against Earth Force? And yeah, you know, they, they just keep finding reasons not to use it, but the time warp thing is hugely important, and you've got to have something that big to make this outrageous technology even hope to be plausible. Yeah, definitely. I also want to just come back to the fact that Londo is one of the the choices of the three people to appear. And I I touched on this a little bit, but I tried not to... I tried to dance it around it a little bit, talking about Londo, uh, the fact that I buy his self-sacrifice bit. And I think that when I first just think about Londo just on a very surfacey level over the course of everything, self-sacrifice is still not one of the first things that jumps into my head. But when I sit down and actually think about it a little more, a lot of the choices he makes, they're they're not really for his self, his own self-aggrandizement. He wants his his people to take their place again amongst the stars. And I think that he all along is willing to sacrifice himself to get to that end. So he makes choices and deals with the shadows and stuff that, that really go against, I think what he would choose to do as a person. And, and I think maybe a lot of his arc really is self-sacrifice in the cause of something that he sees as greater. Do you, am I going too far with this, or, or do you think I'm I'm a, I'm on board? You're on board. No, I I tend to agree that maybe Londo does not appear to be very self-sacrificing now, but certainly as the Shadow War goes on, and then of course once the shadows are gone, Londo, you know, when he accepts the title of Emperor and ex- accepts having a keeper on him. Um, he makes mm-hmm. the choice to do that, um, to sacrifice his own freedom so that he can try to help put Centauri Prime back together. So certainly, eventually, we do get to the point where he is a very self-sacrificing character. I- including his um, including his final act, right. which is to attempt to help uh, Sheridan and Delenn escape and to hope hopefully have soused himself enough that the Keeper will let Jakar kill him. So Londo's end is very self-sacrificing, but that is sort of looking very far forward ahead when he, he's definitely one of these, one of these three does not belong here um, when it comes to Sinclair, Drawl, and Londo at this point in time. Maybe the Great Machine um, can can see that far into the future to see what he's capable of. And instead, what we get is um, Londo having his spirit of adventure reawakened. And that great that great line of uh, Garibaldi's where some things shouldn't be reawakened. And he's talking, he's clearly talking about Lise um, mm-hmm. and his feelings for Lise. But, but yeah, this gives Londo some of that joie de vivre that helps stoke his sense of ambition and his sense of his sense of activity, and it's going to help walk him further and further into Morden's waiting arms. Very true. You know, it's interesting that you say something about perhaps the machine can can see deeper into him or farther into the future, because the, the line that we get from Varn at the end, uh, when Delenn asks to, you know, tell me it's wonderful, he says, you know, he will see all the tomorrows, hear all mm-hmm. the songs, touch the edge of the universe with his thoughts. So, so and, and it warps time to, to get Babylon 4, so perhaps it is seeing forward and, and is able to, to see where he is going. So I guess putting it together that way, it, it, it plays a little bit better for me. I think it, maybe not as watching this for the first time, but but in context, 
I, I think I'm okay with it more now. So thank you for talking me through that, Chip. <laughs> Happy yeah. to help. I think it also um, represents somewhat uh, Delenn's future as well. Uh, the fact that the first thing Drawl asks her about is self-sacrifice. The very first thing I thought about was comes the Inquisitor. And, you know, Delenn standing mm-hmm. up and being yeah. willing to, to die for, it doesn't matter if it's a thousand people or just Sheridan and alone in the dark, but, you know, she will lay down her life for someone else. Um, so that immediately clicked with me. Yeah. In, yeah. In, in story logic and looking at the whole five-year arc, there's no reason why Varn should not have appeared before Delenn. She's yeah. just as much of a true seeker. Very true. Although perhaps it, again, perhaps the machine could sort of see through the future and recognize that she had a sort of larger, stronger purpose ahead of her than than what would have happened had she just sacrificed herself to the machine. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> but then again, same thing with same thing with Sinclair. So who knows? Who knows? Another thing that that comes back later is Lise. And I was actually really surprised that this is how early we get uh, Garibaldi talking about her because, I mean, she comes back much later and it's actually the same actress, which I was very surprised by. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I was just like, oh, wow, she's she's here already. Look at that. Yeah, I agree. It's a it's a neat introduction. Um, and that it starts again so early. Uh, but we're going to get a whole lot of stuff packed into these few years. Uh, she's already married the one guy. And when we see Lise again, uh, she will, I forget what happens to Franz, but whether it's divorce or death, but she's wound up marrying um, the magnate. William Edgars. Thank you. She's wound up marrying Edgars. And then, of course, even farther down the line, she and Garibaldi will eventually get back together. So just, it's kind of interesting knowing what's coming to see this, you know, little tiny scene between them and what's eventually going to happen. Mm-hmm. Now, do you guys know if if this if she was part of the long-term plan or that's something that they added back in later? Because it did seem a little strange to me that she had just gotten remarried and she's having a baby. And then again, she's, she's suddenly married to somebody completely different who is much more convenient to the plot at that time later on. Not a clue. Do not know. Okay. <laughs> Well, either possible. way, I mean, it's it's it still works. Mars is a dangerous place. You know, things are changing all the time. So regardless of whether he died or they got divorced, uh, and I believe that she did lose the baby either way. So mm-hmm. I, I, I believe that, that 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 much change happened. But it, do, it does seem a little bit abrupt, I guess. Oh, another little cute dialogue-based cue that we get is Delenn talking about Sinclair at the end. And, and I, I did like, just from a character standpoint of Delenn, how she specifically maneuvered to not have Sinclair on the shuttle with them, taking Farn down, because she was pretty convinced that Sinclair would have been the one to sacrifice himself. And I think that makes mm-hmm. sense, because I could picture him, picture him doing that. But then she says, you know, he's looking for a purpose, but it lies elsewhere. And mm-hmm. <laughs> after, after it was done, Steve and just was shaking his head. He's like, I don't trust that Delenn person. You know, <laughs> he has a purpose. It lies elsewhere. I think she's got plans for him, and I don't know what they are. <laughs> it's just like, oh, honey. <laughs> yeah, it's got more to do with the uh, with the arc than it than it does feel like at first. When you're when you're when you're going through your list and you're saying, okay, who? It's time to watch Voice in the Wilderness, and it's going to be Erica's turn to moderate it, and it's just this two-part episode. But no, there's it's it's it, it's a two-part episode that actually is well placed, and it gets the job done. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not. It, 
I kind of like the fact that it's not so obviously arc based. It gives you a lot of foundation for what for what's going to be in the arc, but it's not an overly <laughs> signs and portents kind of a thing where it's it's clear something else is going to be explained later. This one it's a open and closed story in and of itself, but gives you information that will be helpful later. Mm-hmm. It's it's less less of a teaser and and more of uh, an appetizer. Yeah. Maybe? As designed, kind of. Um, apparently, The Gathering did really well in, like, overseas home video. And um, the network said, let's be sure to build in a two-parter that we can sell as a standalone early on. And JMS oh. is like, yep, sounds good to me. And there we go. And it is. It, it is very well self-contained. And if you watch it back-to-back... I'm shaking my head over the the cliffhanger because I was not impressed by it at all. You know, <laughs> that, that could that could have been so much more dramatic than uh, Garibaldi quizzically looking at a monitor and saying, "What the hell?" But <laughs> but if you if you put the whole if you put the whole thing together um, as a commercial free one hour and thirty minute package, it's got great pacing, better pacing than some of the future uh, B five TV movies, honestly. Yeah, actually, one thing Steven said was that that he liked how the second part just picked up immediately from it. He said, you know, if you just watched it all together and cut out the credits in the middle there, it would it would play really well. And apparently that was by design. Mm -hmm. So well done. Any other any other future looking spoilery type things that you guys want to touch on before we jet out of here? I'm looking forward to next week. I'm looking or or, or the next episode of the podcast. Uh, Babylon Squared. We find out later on, much later on, that it's very deeply tied to this very episode. And Babylon Squared is the next up in the sequence. And we don't get that relationship really spelled out until season three. But it's a nice uh, little um, aperitif to this one, wouldn't you say? I, I completely agree. That works. All right. Well, in that case, we will leave you to your homework. Again, find us find us online at b5audioguide.com and Twitter and Tumblr at b5audioguide. We would love to hear what you guys think. Just make sure that you keep your spoilery comments to the spoiler sections. Um, and But also do feel free to pop your head into the spoiler-free comment threads on the website if you want to interact with some of the, the newbies. It's uh, it's pretty exciting. I like I like watching what people think of as they are watching this for the first time. It's it's fun. So, until next time, this is Erica in Edmonton, Shannon in Durham, and Chip in Durham, and you've been listening to the audio guide to Babylon Five.